Okay, we are in Matthew chapter 2. First 12 verses. This is a very familiar story. One that we hear a lot this time of year. Perhaps we'll learn something new about it this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew being the first book of the New Testament. So you'd have Malachi to your left and Mark to your right. We'll be reading the first 12 verses. Please listen carefully. This is the word of the Lord. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures, making us your people. You have brought us again to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son and to use this gospel to cause us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, guard us this morning against the uh, familiarities of this passage. We have read it often. We have sung it often. We have heard it often. Perhaps on Christmas Eve as our fathers read it to us, perhaps in Sunday school, we attach great sentimental meaning to this passage. But remind us this morning, this passage is meant for our instruction, our training, our edification, our correction, for building us up in truth and righteousness. So by your Spirit, open this gospel to us and help us to see Jesus. Help us to come to know him more. Help us to see wonderful things in your word. As always, for this we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this past week, those of you who are stargazers got a brilliant light show. The annual Geminid meteor shower peaked this past Thursday night, just a couple days ago. Dazzling stargazers, or more correctly as they like to be known, Skywatchers 
around the world with a bounty of brilliant shooting stars. The Geminids' peak was supposed to be uh, particularly good this year as it occurred in a sky that was left dark by a new moon. Experts predicted that viewers in rural areas might be able to see 100 meteors an hour early, early Friday morning. And judging by the reactions of many uh, readers of several space-related journals, the Geminids did not disappoint. The Geminids are so named because they appear to emanate from the constellation uh, Gemini, the twins, and are one of the most dependably impressive annual meteor showers. They result when Earth, uh, in its uh, rotation around the sun, plows through debris shed by a three-mile-wide asteroid called 3200 Phaeton. I don't know if there's 3,199 other Phaetons before it, but that's its name. Anyway, these tiny particles burn up in our planet's atmosphere, leaving the bright streaks in the sky to commemorate their passing. And good news for us, the Naval Observatory says that the Geminids, when compared with other meteor showers, are relative slowpokes. Makes them easier to see Alan McRoberts, senior editor at Sky and Telescope magazine, which most of you get, I'm sure, explains that geminid particles, being relative slowpokes in the meteor world, travel at a mere 22 miles per second. I've never ever said slow and 22 miles per second in the same sentence. Anyway, that makes them easy to see. And if you miss them this week, don't fret. You have one more night to catch the meteor shower. The Geminids are supposed to linger through tonight before fizzling out completely. Now, the best way to view a meteor shower is uh, to get away from the city. It's to go as far away from city lights as you can until you get in a big open field, lie on the ground, and look straight up so you can see as much of the sky as possible. But don't expect to see very many meteors until you've allowed at least 30 minutes for your eyes to adjust to the dark. And they say plan on staying out there for at least an hour. So get a warm jacket, a hat, scarves, warm gloves, maybe some hot chocolate, and go on outside. They say two in the morning is the best time, and happy sky watching. Of course, you won't be the first sky watcher in history, nor will you be the most famous. Arguably, that title belongs to a group of men that history knows as the wise men. We find them here in Matthew chapter 2, our passage for today. And what we learn about them is quite remarkable, because the first thing we learn about them is, uh, the, the first thing we learn about is the faith of the wrong men the faith of the wrong men. It's particularly bad mood this week. I gave you two blanks. Surely one of the great stories of Christmas is the story of the visit of the wise men from the East. Whenever the story of the birth of Jesus is told, so too is this delightful tale of these strange men from a faraway land who bring gifts to the baby Jesus. 
And from time immemorial, every children's Christmas pageant has included them. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus in the middle, the shepherds on your left, and the wise men on your right. Always three nervous little boys dressed up like oriental punk rockers, bringing gold and two other gifts they can't pronounce. This story comes to us only in Matthew's Gospel. All that we know about the wise men we find here in chapter 2. They show up in verse 1, they disappear in verse 12, and they leave behind a whole lot of unanswered questions. Who are the wise men and where did they come from? We don't really know. How many were there? We don't really know. We know there was more than one because magi is plural. We know there was three gifts, but not necessarily three wise men. Could have been 40. We don't know. What is the star they saw? How did it lead them to Bethlehem? We don't know. How long after the birth of Jesus did they arrive in Jerusalem? We don't really know. How did they know the baby was going to be the king of the Jews? We don't really know. There's a lot that we don't really know. And because of all the mystery and all these unanswered questions, great legends have grown up about the wise men. Over the centuries, the legends have grown. The wise men were given names, Caspar, Melchior, and Belshazzar. It's great names. You should consider those. They were venerated as saints, and a tradition arose called the Adoration of the Magi. Among the other legends uh, perpetrated about the wise men are these. Uh, one came from India, one from Egypt, and one from Greece. Although we're pretty sure they came from Persia, although some think Babylon or perhaps Arabia, we don't really know. Another legend is they were later baptized by St. Thomas, but it's unlikely they were still alive during Thomas's ministry. And finally, it's alleged their bones were discovered by St. Helena, deposited in the great church of St. Sophia in Constantinople, transferred to the Domo of Milan, and finally came to rest in the great cathedral of Cologne. In fact, if you go to the cathedral of Cologne in Germany today, you will find relics alleged to be the remains of the wise men. And after you puzzle over all the questions and play it over in your mind a few dozen times, you'll have as many mysteries at the end as you had at the beginning. It's part of the perennial fascination with this part of the Christmas story. It all begins this way, starting at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Well, right away we discover something interesting. The wise men, whoever they are, show up in Jerusalem after the birth of Jesus. Now that runs contrary to the notion that the shepherds and wise men arrive in Bethlehem at the same time. Not so. The shepherds were there the night Jesus was born. The wise men came sometime later. How much later? We don't really know. It may have been a few months later. Some think it may have even been a year or two later. The only hint we get is at least a few days later because when the wise men find Jesus, he's with his mother in a house in Bethlehem 
and not in a manger, a stable, or a cave, or any other such thing. That, by the way, fits well with the tradition of the Eastern Orthodox Church that the wise men came 12 days after Christmas on January 6th. And that's why the Sunday closest to January 6th is called Epiphany in the church year. Epiphany celebrates the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles. And that's where we get the 12 days of Christmas. Traditionally, the 12 days of Christmas, the 12 days of gift-giving, go from his birth on December 25th to the arrival of the wise men on January 6th. Don't believe what Macy's or any of the other outlets uh, tell you. We're not in the middle of the 12 days of Christmas yet. They're just trying to get you to buy more stuff. As I said, this is only a tradition, the 12 days of Christmas, from Christmas to Epiphany, but it is a very, very old tradition, and it may very well be correct. Now notice the wise men are often called magi from the east. That's all we're told about them. This term magi is ultimately a Persian word. It's our greatest clue to where they're from. And it referred to a special class of priests in the Persian Empire. We know from other sources the Magi had existed for hundreds of years before the time of Christ. They had their own religion. They're usually thought to be followers of Zoroastrianism. They have their own priesthood, their own writings. It appears from the book of Daniel that they existed in his day. <coughs> and it even seems that Daniel was appointed head over the cast of the Magi in the time of King Darius. So who are the Magi? Well, they're the professors and philosophers of their day. They are brilliant and highly educated scholars who are trained in medicine, history, religion, prophecy, and astronomy. They were also trained in what we would call astrology. Now, our, in our day, astrology has gotten a very well-deserved bad rap. But in the ancient Near East, astrology was connected with man's search for God. The ancients studied the skies in order to find answers to the great questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Now, there's a difference between astronomy and astrology. Astronomy is the science of the study of the stars. Astrology is the belief that there's a connection between the position of the stars and man's destiny. And the Magi are experts in both astronomy and astrology and claim to be able to divine the future. Well, there's another thing to see here about someone else who is uh, able to prophesy about the future. And Matthew uh, explicitly directs your attention. He mentions the star numerous times. Do you remember who made a prophecy about a star? Where it's found in the Old Testament? Who made a prophecy about a star rising up out of Judah? It was Balaam. Remember him? He had a very famous donkey. And we read the following in Numbers chapter 24. And he says... And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. Here's the prophecy. I see him 
but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Now Balaam, this pagan unbelieving prophet who is hired by Balak to curse Israel, makes the prophecy of a star rising out of Judah that Matthew is telling us that Jesus fulfills. That's amazing. You have this pagan, unbelieving prophet making a prophecy about a star that rises out of Judah, and now you have pagans from the east who make their way following the star they think is fulfilling this prophecy to come worship Jesus. And Matthew is pressing home this. God's word can be trusted, and he can use anyone to bring that word, even Balaam, even the Magi. The important fact for us to know about the Magi is they're highly influential in Persia. They were, in fact, advisors to the king. While they were not kings, it would not be wrong to call them kingmakers. They functioned as the political advisors to the Persian Empire. And finally, they're highly educated men who thought deeply about life Consequently, it's perfectly legitimate to call them wise men. But why have they traveled so far from home? It's a journey of a thousand miles, of over a thousand miles from Persia to Israel. Why have they made such a treacherous journey? The answer is they have come to see the baby born king of the Jews. And this is fascinating. They knew a baby has been born, but they didn't know where. They knew he was a king but they didn't know his name. So they come to Jerusalem, the capital city, seeking help. And they assume, it, it seems, that everyone has to know about this baby, but there are some great surprises that await them here. And the first surprise is these men really wouldn't have been trusted. In fact, they were probably hated. If King Herod didn't have to worry how the Romans would react, it's likely they could have been killed on the spot. Now, it's likely there weren't just three of them and they just didn't show up by themselves. They probably came in a large caravan all the way from what we would call modern-day Iran, and uh, there was probably lots of them with uh, lots of camels and such. And they arrived with great fanfare to Jerusalem. But the reality is Herod does have to worry about the Romans. And it may be likely that he just couldn't care less, not being fully Jewish himself. He ruled over the Jews with an iron hand and uh, wasn't keen to paying attention to their own history. But the reality is, while they may have been well-received, they wouldn't have been welcomed. After all, they came from the East, the text tells us. Now, to the Jewish people, the east is the land of exile. One of two defining moments in their history. The place they had been banished to during the time of Daniel. However, not coincidentally, the Persians, if you remember, conquered the Babylonians. And it was a Persian king who allowed the Jews under Ezra and Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem. And so while there's no love lost between these peoples, there's probably a sense of obligation to grant them fair passage through the land. But the second surprise that would have awaited the wise men 
One was the lack of a welcoming committee, but the second one would have been that there was no faith to be found in Jerusalem. No one knew about this baby, and once they found out, no one cared. The rulers in the land were apathetic about religion and religious about power. These are supposed to be the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the descendants of King David and King Solomon, known throughout the ancient Near East. And yet upon their arrival, the news of why they had come so far is met with apathy, it's met with scheming, it's met with deception. In fact, it's met with everything but faith. So that moves us from the faith of the wrong men to the disbelief, the lack of faith, of the right men. The disbelief of the right men. Picking up at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, quoting Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Matthew is showing you how neither Herod the secular leader of his people, or the chief priests and scribes, the religious leaders of Israel, nor even the people of Jerusalem, have a right understanding of the significance of the birth of this child in Bethlehem. He's reminding us here that God must reveal Christ to us if we are going to seek him. God must reveal Christ to us if we are going to seek him. It's a pretty striking contrast, isn't it? I mean, we're told in verse 1 that the Magi, wise men from the east, Gentiles, are coming to Jerusalem to inquire, where's your new king? We're here to do him honor. We're here to show him homage. We're here to worship him. And yet in Jerusalem, there is no such preparation. Herod's not preparing for a pilgrimage to Bethlehem. He knows about the prophecy of the Messiah. He immediately asks the religious leaders, where to find out about the prophecy and where it says the Messiah will be born, but he's making no preparations to go there to worship. And yes, he will lie uh, that he is, but he only wants to know so he can kill the child. And the religious leaders, they know where to look in their Bibles to find out about the prophecy of the Messiah, but they clearly don't understand her, or they would also be preparing to go to Bethlehem to worship him. They know their Bibles. They know where the prophecy of the Messiah is, but they're not preparing to worship him. And then the people, the people of Jerusalem, they're troubled right along with Herod. They're thinking, oh no, the Messiah, that means trouble with the Romans. This could mean war. It could mean strife. People could get killed. It could mean a disruption to our way of life. And they too have the scriptures. Their rabbis read the scriptures to them every Sabbath. But they're not preparing to worship the Messiah either. If we are to worship the Messiah, if we're to see Christ, God must reveal him to us. But these Gentiles, and we don't know if they have the scriptures or not, 
Probably not. But they might have some remnants of it. We know their uh, Jews remained behind in the East and have till this day, thousands of years later, tracing all the way back to the exile. Quite frankly, we don't fully understand how God has given them this revelation. We know He's shown them this star and it's compelled them on their way to Israel, to Jerusalem, and to Bethlehem. But God shines His light on these Gentiles and they come seeking His Son, the King. And God is able to reveal Christ even to these Gentiles. So what lessons do we learn from this? Well, surely we learn... Uh, at least this lesson. It's possible for religious people to be spiritually blind. It's possible for religious people to be spiritually blind. It's possible for religious people, those who possess divine revelation, who have the Holy Scriptures, to still be spiritually blind. I mean, Herod at least knew to ask about the Messiah. The religious leaders knew where to go, chapter and verse. But they're spiritually blind to the significance of the birth of this little boy. God himself must reveal Christ to us if we're going to go seeking him. And the irony here is he reveals Christ to these Gentiles, and whereas no one in Jerusalem is preparing to go worship him in Bethlehem, these Gentiles are because God has revealed Christ to them and so they seek to worship him. Is there not a message for us in that? Right here in this congregation, here at Potomac Hills, we have benefited from faithful reading and preaching of God's word for 20 years as a people. Whether we were meeting in the Leesburg Funeral Home or down at Ashburn Elementary School or right here at Harper Park where we've been since September of 99. When the people of God have gathered here, God's word has been read and proclaimed. God's gospel has sounded forth. Do you realize what a privilege that is? There's no place in the world I'd rather be worshiping the Lord than right here with you. And yet it's possible, without the Spirit of God, for that word to be read, to be proclaimed with power, and yet for it to fall on hard hearts that don't hear it, that don't realize the glory of Christ, that don't believe the truth of the gospel. For years, for Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, if the Spirit of God's not working, we have people that won't get it. And at a minimum, it should remind us to never go to the Word of God without prayer, that He would help us, that He would open our eyes. Why do we open every sermon with prayer that God would teach us? Because we recognize it's not by the power of our own intellects that we go to this Word and find it the Word of life. We're acknowledging that God the Holy Spirit must open our eyes to see the glories of Scripture, the truth of the Gospel, and, the, and that means we have to be praying that God would do this, but also praying for each other. Praying for one another that God would open our eyes. Open the eyes of the person sitting next to you, behind you, in front of you. That we would then respond in faith to the truth of His Word. It's possible to be religious people in possession of divine revelation and yet be spiritually blind. We need God by His Spirit to open our eyes that we would see the Messiah, 
that we would trust in the Messiah, that we would believe in the Messiah, that we would respond in worship and love and faith to the Messiah. Surely that's one of the great lessons of this story. But the story's not over yet because these wise men have come to worship the king and in coming to the king, they bring him gifts. And with these gifts, they foretell the future of the king. The future of the king. Starting at verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them till it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. In the very gifts that are given to Christ, there is prophecy. And in the birth of Christ, we see not only the fulfillment of Scripture, but a clear witness to the gospel. Matthew is reminding us here that God caused Christ first to be born according to the prophecies of Scripture, but he's also telling us that Christ's birth, even in the gifts he receives, foreshadows the work that he came to do. First, jump back to verses 5 and 6, which we looked at earlier. There, when Herod asks of the Jewish leaders, where is it that the Messiah is supposed to be born? They know. They go right to Micah. They quote it chapter and verse just right. It's in Bethlehem. That's where he's supposed to be born. And Matthew's telling you this because he wants you to understand that Christ coming into the world is God's plan from before the foundation of the world. It's God's plan, which he has already revealed through his prophets, so that the prophecies fulfilled in Jesus' birth serve to verify his identity for us. They serve to tell us about his nature. They tell us about our Savior, who he is, what he came to do, what he was like. And those prophecies from Micah and Isaiah, from Numbers, from Genesis, from Jeremiah, these prophecies are fulfilled in the birth of Christ. But not only that, even the gifts that are given foretell his coming ministry and work. Look again at verse 11. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. These are kingly gifts. These are valuable gifts. How ironic that this baby boy who's been laid in a feeding trough, that's what a manger is. It's a feeding trough. Is now receiving kingly gifts. It's a strange contrast, but remember back in Matthew chapter 1, he's already shown us that Jesus deserves royal honor. He's descended from kings. He's in the line of King David. He's the one who will sit on David's throne. And so here Matthew shows you Jesus receiving kingly honor, but he's receiving it from Gentiles. And even these gifts, they speak of his life and ministry, his work and his death, gold and frankincense and myrrh. These gifts have long been a point of reflection for Christians. 1,800 years ago, a man in uh, Alexandria, Egypt, reading his Bible and expounding it, a man named Origen, lived right at the end of the 2nd century, beginning of the 3rd century. 
we consider him one of the church fathers. He's reflecting on these verses, and he said this, gold as to a king, myrrh as to one who will die, incense as to God. Some 1,700 years later, Ursula Vaughn Williams would write a poem that her husband would include in his glorious Christmas oratorio, Ralph Vaughn Williams' famous Christmas oratorio. It's called Odi, which means this day in Latin, Christmas Day. It's actually one of the great Christmas musicals. And Ursula Vaughn Williams, his wife, wrote these words. Gold from the veins of earth he brings, red gold to crown the king of kings. Power and glory here behold, shut in a talisman of gold. She's saying the golden gift was fit for a king and so appropriate because Jesus is the king of kings. And then she goes on. Frankincense from these dark cans was gathered in eastern sunrise lands. Incense to burn both day and night to bear the prayers a priest will say. She understood the incense foreshadowed Christ as a priest of his people who day and night with loud cries would pray for us and he would be heard because of his piety as Hebrews 5.8 tells us. And then she goes on to say, myrrh is a bitter gift for the dead. Birth begins the path you tread. Your way is short, your days foretold by myrrh and frankincense and gold. See, the birth of this Christ not only fulfills the ancient prophecies, <coughs> it bears witness to us as to who he is. It points to the gospel that this babe is a prophet, priest, and king who will die for his people. Beloved, that is extraordinary. Christmas can be a time of great isolation. It's a time of great family joy, but it can be a time of great isolation. Even when the family is gathered, there can be isolation. And isn't it interesting that in God's divine rescue operation, he doesn't sit in the halls of glory and dispense decrees for the angels to carry out in order to reclaim you as people and to bring you back into fellowship and into a right relationship with him. No, he comes down. He gets inside your flesh to draw you near. That's what he does in the gospel. He sends his son, his only son, the son of his love, who takes on your flesh, your humanity, your human nature, who crawls inside of what you are and drags you back to his father. In this birth, it shows forth what the son does and how he does this in dying for you. So the gospel doesn't end at the sending of the son into the world. It ends with the death, resurrection, ascension of Christ, and then, of course, in the coming again of that same Christ that we might be with him forever. And what's the response that's demanded by this text? Simply to believe. To believe that this boy, born of a virgin, laid in a feeding trough, is the living word of the Father, the Son of God, Savior of sinners, is our Savior. I love the way the Apostle Paul says it in Galatians 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
It's that He loved me and gave Himself for me. I want you to focus on that word me. It doesn't say that He gave us or that He loved us. It says He loved me, gave Himself for me. He's expressing His love for each and every one of His children. He knows your heart. He knows every inch of you. And He loves you anyway. And He gave His Son for you. And He asks you to believe. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. pray together. Oh Lord, thank you that you have given us a king. Help us to realize that apart from your spirit, we're blind. We can be blind to our own need. We can be blind to our Savior. So this Advent, we look forward to his coming. We look forward to his saving. We give you great thanks for sending Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Open our eyes that we might see our need and see our Savior. Help us to see him and trust him and believe in him and love him and adore him and worship him just as he loved me and gave himself for me. And Lord, we pray again for all these folks in Connecticut. Only a God who gave his son can understand. We ask that you would reveal to them that you understand the loss of a child more so than most. We ask these things this morning in the name of the King, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.